Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are continuing our look at the films of Iseo Takahata with uh, My Neighbors the Yamadas and Palm Poco. I was just saying, an odd couple of movies. <laughs> really kind of locked into my head the idea of Takahata and Miyazaki, of course. I'm the, like the, literally the millionth person to say this as being real film auteurs, as really kind of fulfilling their vision on the screen. And, you know, we started our whole series of conversations talking about some other film auteurs. Uh, and this work really firmly fits in that same mold. It's just in its own very interesting kind of milieu, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're very unique entries in a very unique career. Because uh, as everyone knows about Ghibli, they are, they were the, they've always been the boutique studio uh, mm -hmm. for animation anywhere in the world, really. And yeah. uh, and uh, so we have two contrasting films, both of which really fit Takata's vision, both of which took many years to create, both of which create, contain technical and creative innovations, both of which are very Japanese. Yes. Uh, apparently... Pompoko was the most popular film in Japan the year it was released, which I think was 1995. Yamna's, on the other hand, was a complete financial uh, catastrophe. <laughs> uh, to this day, is the worst money loser film for Ghibli. I think at the time, it was the first film that had lost money. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're an interesting couple of films because... Watching it now, I can see Yamada as being the popular one and Pompoko being much more alienating. Now, really? you were surprised I didn't like about my initial reaction to Pompoko. So share your yeah. opinions about that. Yeah, I, well, surprised, yeah, kind of delighted because it's a rare example of us possibly disagreeing on a film. <laughs> Which you know, presents some possibilities for discussion. I, uh, so Pompoko is one of those movies that I saw um, with my, my son when he was quite young. Uh, so it has kind of a personal, you know, kind of warm, cozy feeling about it. A lot of memories wrapped up around watching this with my boy when he was, you know, um, just a little kid, just a toddler. And so um, it's hard for me to separate this movie from that and be completely objective about it. Um, it's a very different movie. As you said, it's very Japanese. It's very different at the time from what Takahata was doing in his career because with Grave of the Fireflies and only yesterday, you saw him sort of edging toward this almost photorealistic style of animation and uh, the incredible amount of detail. We spoke about that uh, in the last episode, uh, the incredible amount of detail that went into the making of those two films to make them feel ultra realistic. Uh, this movie is not realistic at all. <laughs> it goes out of its way to be as 
far away from realism as you possibly can get. It has kind of a classical cartoony style, what we'd sort of associate with car cartoons. Um, the characters are very, um, most of them are tanukis, right? So they're folkloric uh, creatures, but even the human beings have kind of a cartoonish look to them. And so fact, in a way, like the film really plays with animation styles. The Tanuki have some in some scenes three or four different looks in the in a sequence of ten seconds yeah, or so. so. They, weave, they weave between the the Tanuki look and the which is how they appear to one another, and then uh, raccoons, which is how they appear to human beings. And then even when they're around each other, if they get agitated or uh, surprised, they kind of revert into this moji looking. Uh, version of the tanuki so uh, which you know makes reference to say like manga style uh, depictions mm -hmm. um, so just the characters themselves are drawn in in, in a uh, I mean the the raccoon depiction has some some um, realism to it but only to contrast it to the cartoonish nature of their other appearances um yeah and there is quite a bit of different animation styles at work some of it's almost like a throwback to uh his um you know chie the brat type of cartoon style uh you know very um stylized yeah. at times um there's there's quite a bit of he it's almost like he was going so far uh, forward with the the hyperrealism of Grave of Fireflies and only yesterday that when he was back into this uh, into this kind of sandbox where he didn't have to be concerned with that hyperrealism, he just went wild and he kind of like threw everything at it that he could. All these different styles of Japanese animation are at play here, making references to other Jap anime films. There's also he he borrows from you know. Uh, Japanese scrolls. So, um, you know, he had, and I believe Takahata had written scholarly texts on Japanese scrolls, and he saw them as being sort of the origin for manga and for anime, uh, um, the unfolding classical Japanese scrolls that, that, um, that he makes reference to in this film. So there's a lot of different visual styles going on. It can feel a little bit crowded and maybe disjointed at times because there is just so much being thrown at you. Um, the The film is also, you know, I mean, part of the course with Takahata, it's it's vignettes almost entirely. Uh, there's a thin thread of storyline in it, which is basically uh, these Yama Yama Hills. Uh, outside Tokyo was being during the 70s and 80s during the economic boom was being developed uh, into suburbs. And uh, so the film is sort of a commentary on that environmental impact of the development of Yama Hills around Tokyo and how that's impacting the wildlife, namely the raccoons or the tanuki. Um, it's also a it's also a confrontation between the tanuki being folklore sort of reference to classical Japan and then the modern uh, society and how those two 
aspects of Japanese society are, you know, working at odds um, or, you know, uh, are incongruent uh, together. Um, <laughs> no surprise considering the work Takahata has delivered. Right. have been watching, is, right? Because this whole yeah. life seems to be about the conflict between modernity and the classical Japanese transit uh, tradition with uh yeah what is being yeah an and that and, and, and that. Pro also uh progress and traditionalism is 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 one of the themes being explored here obviously environmental impact of the, of modern society industrialized society is being addressed here which is one of his major themes there's also one of his major themes of community and that utopianist ideal that's being sort of the pressures being put upon that by the demands uh, of uh, modern society uh, or capitalist society, namely. Um, so there's that push-pull between the sort of communistic and capitalistic uh, impulses that are taking place that go all the way back to like Horace, right? Yeah, so I would call it more socialistic impulse, impulses, socialistic, which is right. more community-based than in the political uh, angle of communism, but that's a nitpick. Yeah, I think, I, I, I guess I meant that in the sense of like the commune, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Of, of communal life, which is what the Tanuki have. Um, and so all of these uh, different elements are being worked upon in, in this film. So th there's a lot going on. Uh, my son could look at this movie and just enjoy it as just a bunch of like crazy uh, activities taking place, you know, and he could, he could follow that, that thread, which was uh, of the Tanuki's battle against uh, progress, which is how do we, um, how do we incite some sort of chaos into this progress that's taking place? How do we, how do we like uh, stop this progress from happening? And, and the kind of, uh, typically Tanuki style ways that they do this is to basically just like screw with humanity by like putting on these elaborate um, uh, tricks essentially that they're playing on people. You know, they're, they're driving uh, trucks into um, craters and stuff like that. And they're, they're uh, uh, one of the more memorable um sequences in the film is the the parade that they that they uh do you, you know where that where they the end. basically the yeah we'll, 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 we'll get to that yeah. but but yeah there's basically like this progress of the tanuki trying to develop their skills to be these shapeshifters so that they can insert themselves into human society and just create this chaos and disarray in the hopes that humanity will eventually just give up on this on this um project of development so you know, that's kind of like the thin thread that's going through the film. But really what what this movie is about, you know, if it's about anything, is a celebration of this traditional Japan um, that's being lost. Um, the, the folklore, the music, the clothing, everything, you know, uh, it's really kind of like a lament. It's got a very bittersweet feel to it. Uh, well, I, at the I, same time, I think it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. Well, at the same time, it's bittersweet, but at the same time, it's 
uproariously funny. I think. I think it's a, a totally enjoyable kind of. Aside from the uh, co almost constant references to uh, Tanuki uh, uh, testicles, testicles. Um, you know, which is, you know, the 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 Japanese fascination with testicles is an interesting subject unto itself. <laughs> yeah, we can get to that. We're not. Um, but um, so, you know, aside from that, yeah, um, I, I think it's a it, it's just a fun kind of like family film that can be enjoyed on by kids that can see it through their. Uh, you know, through their lens and then adults obviously can get a lot out of it as well. Um, so here's my pull quote about this movie. Yeah. This is the happiest film about, about genocide I've ever seen. <laughs> because it is joyful and it is yes. fun. It is weird as fuck. Um, yes. But it it's like, uh, you know, basically it's these poor, pathetic, not pathetic. Yeah, pathetic creatures who think their cuteness and trickery and the ability to stop small things is going to prevent the utter destruction of their entire habitat that's going to require them to either be confined into these very small areas mm -hmm. where they have no ability to actually live or to be exterminated and or, Takahata doesn't shy away from that or or the third option uh, is to integrate themselves assimilate and become part of assimilate right yes uh absolutely uh, you and can draw some it, interesting it, parallels yeah. to like the native american experience absolutely. in the united states uh in this film which has some very interesting parallels and in a more conformist society like japan than the u.s um it, there's even more pressure to conform so right um one of the one of the great tragedies one of the many great tragedies of this film is that as much as these creatures try to integrate into Japanese society, they'll never be able to fully integrate because of the very close nature of the society. Right. Too much of a trickster, especially in this time frame. You know, they're in during, as you said, the Japanese boom or the bubble. Um, so you know, there's I, I appreciate this film in terms of the quality of it, but I really disliked it <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is I just found it very well, maybe for three reasons. One is I found it, as you said, disjointed. And disjointed in a way that was different from only yesterday or Yamada's, where, um, you know, it's got the narrator kind of carrying things through. Right. But the narrator doesn't really kind of hold everything together. It felt like a very kind of strained attempt at the thread that's going to allow things to be connected. And it felt like things never quite got as connected as um, they could have been. And I really blame myself for that more than Takahata, because being in my American milieu, there is, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of references to Japanese history, society, culture in here. And, you know, most of them probably just went way above my head or past me. And so therefore, I just wasn't catching all the implications of what I was yeah. seeing. Right. And I'm the guy who writes about graphic novels and I'm picking up, you know, six layers of meaning in a certain scene. 
because of it echoing forward, echoing back, you know, the storytelling motifs and all that. So I yeah. actually really respect that, making a, a movie that's kind of obviously resonant with the Japanese people because of its extreme popularity, but also alienating for me. It's kind of a profoundly interesting experience for me. So not a complaint, but a reason for me to dislike the experience of watching it. Uh, secondly, I just found it weird <laughs> and I'm not a person who minds weird movies, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the movies I've been talking about with Chris Wunderlich on this film, but I found it weird in a way that I just had trouble kind of really appreciating in the way I wanted to appreciate it. You know, uh, all the transformations and the stuff with them beating their bellies and uh, the balls uh, and the comic <laughs> combining the bodies and all yeah. that stuff. It was just, uh, it was just odd. And viscerally, I just didn't really get into that. Maybe I just don't have enough childlike wonder inside me. Well, you're right. It does. I think enjoyment of this film does depend. The level of one's enjoyment probably is an indirect parallel to one's familiarity with very specific Japanese cultural references that are being made throughout this film i mean just that parade where the all the yokai are being you know uh conjured up by the tanuki uh to ostensibly scare the people but they end up enjoying it obviously yeah. you know backfires um you know that's that's a key example there's big all sorts of references being made there within like a five minute span i mean uh they're even making references to like you know classical japanese artwork like hokusai and 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 things like that um, you know, the Tanuki's uh, magical testicles, I mean, that's that's directly from folklore, you know, like Takahata didn't invent that. Um, so it does make sense within the context of the film, you know, within context of Japanese culture. But just coming to it cold as an American uh, viewer or somebody who's not familiar with Japanese culture, I could see it'd be kind of like off-putting maybe and kind of yeah. like weird for, you know, especially if you're watching it with a kid, like how am I supposed to explain this? I think when Disney released it, they came up with some funny explanation, like in a press release on how to like, um, <laughs> what to describe the Tanuki balls as being. And I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was quite funny. I, I, I want to be clear, like it's not a complaint. No. I just found it odd as uh, as a watching experience. And yeah. actually, like, you know, you watch a French film and they'll make, there'll be expectations you understand a reference in the French film that you just don't get as an American. And, and right. I like that. I think that's actually really interesting because yes. we're changing the shoes on the other foot, right? Yeah. Um, and then the third complaint, the, the third and probably primary reason I ended up not enjoying this movie is, like I said, um, ultimately, it's a lot of hubbub that ends in disaster. Yes. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's a bittersweet uh, ending. Absolutely. It's a tragic ending, actually. And you can absolutely understand why the humans, why the Japanese people want to expand out, mm -hmm. why they're building the suburbs, uh, why the, the land is so expensive, why they felt the need to carve out the cliffs and stuff. Um, right. But at the same time, you know, they're destroying so much of what made, made that air region of Japan a special place. And you could tell, um, you know, with all the references in there, the beautiful references, for example, to the old Japanese gods yeah. kind of playing in the fields. Oh, um, that yeah, that's a wonderful uh, shot. Yeah. Yeah. Which just really gave this uh, kind of other elements of like, here's this human 
break of the connectedness mm-hmm. of thousands of years of our history. And now we need to, we are compelled to destroy it. And yet the people who live in those houses have kids mm-hmm. who play in the, in outside and they seem very happy. And, you know, everyone seems to be enjoying their lives, essentially oblivious to the terror they've created, to the problems that have, that have been manifested because they simply need a place to live. Right. And that's depicted in the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, so it, it's, it's a Takahata is, is smart enough to introduce that, that layer of meaning, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not going for simple moralistic black and white, you know, uh, right and wrong sort of uh, perspective. He's too smart for that. Yeah. It's not Disney's Pocahontas. Exactly. Right. Which is something I can appreciate. You know, it has some, there's a level of ambiguity to it. That's, that's really pleasurable and, and, and unique and kind of a breath of fresh air in, in a film that's sort of like kind of, pretty much directed toward children yeah yeah and so you took your son to that what did you make of this really being a film for children and yet it's got this kind of different these different elements to it well like i said it's it's also like not like uh the miyazaki films which may be kind of profound and a little scary but uh right now mononoke for example is it's a little adventure film a child can enjoy well, it's animals too, which mm-hmm. I think children naturally have a fascination with, particularly like, you know, anthropomorphic animals. There's a very long history of them in animation. Uh, so I think that's that's something that um, that children connect with. So that's kind of like an immediate, kind of like direct conduit of, for, for a child watching this film. It's like, you know, they're, they're cute furry animals. Yeah. Uh, so there's that aspect to it. And and I think a lot of kids who are, you know, maybe grew up on Disney or something like that, uh, where there is this, there is, tends to be occasional uh, environmental messaging going on in those films that they're probably smart enough to pick up on that happening in this film as well. It's pretty overt. Like you said, the narrator sort of lays it all out, right? I, I saw this uh, with the English dub I, I like both versions actually. Sometimes I don't really like the uh, U.S. or the English language dubs um, because I don't. Uh, the voice actors don't agree with me. Whatever they, you know, some sometimes they're less than. Like my neighbor uh, Totoro is an excellent example of that. The English dub of that is just awful. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um. I, I digress. Um, <laughs> this film, I don't mind the the English dub. They got some great, uh, interesting uh, American actors to the voice. One of the voices is, uh, ah, I can't remember her name, but she was a voice actress for The Simpsons. And she does the voice of the grandmother in My Neighbor the Amadas as well. She's also in this. Uh, she's great. Uh, J.K. Simmons is in there. Uh, the The narrator, though, is the... I, I can't recall his name, but he played the kind of like Orson Welles-ish mouse and Pinky in the Brain, if you remember mm-hmm. that Warner Brothers cartoon, which is not a bad cartoon. Um, and he's he's really great. I mean, it's a great voice for the for the um, narrator. And years later, I went to go see Isle of the Dogs, which with my son again, um, animated film that this time 
by Wes Anderson. Uh, and watching that film, which is set in Japan and has kind of a similar theme going on in a way uh, there's an environmental message in there and a group of animals that are kind of like have been cast away out of society because they present some you know threat to the leader's vision of a dogless society that kind of thing uh, and they band together so there's a little bit of a common theme in both films but the narrator in Isle of Dogs I felt like was doing an impersonation of the narrator in this film hmm. and it, it was so overt that it had to be intentional and I know Wes Anderson is an admitted uh, Ghibli fan so it it had to have been uh, influenced by Pompoko I thought that was kind of interesting that this film has had some greater kind of like cultural impact even within the United States among filmmakers. So uh, I, I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a, a movie that is uh, very palatable to a lot of different tastes. And as you, and, and what's interesting to me about that is it is such an eccentric movie. It's just, uh -huh. it, it does not, um, it does not seem to hit all the marks or, or all the beats of a sort of linear three-act film. Uh, not No, and, it doesn't have that flow. Neither does Yamada. Actually, neither does no. most of Takahata's films. Right, right. But this film, pointedly, unlike a lot of those other films, which, which have kind of a uh, unifying visual palette to them, th this movie is just... And like we keep saying, it's just kind of like all over the place. Uh, and um, I, I just, I, I think it's a, I, I can understand your um, uneasiness with it. Uh, and I can certainly, I can certainly see that. But I, I, I still think it's one of Takahata's most enjoyable movies. It's one, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, what I always say is I, uh, with filmmakers, it's, I have favorite films and then I have the ones that I watch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I could give you other examples of that, but um, <laughs> this is a, this is a prime example of like, I can say Grave of the Fireflies and is Takahata's best film. Okay. But it's but not, not the one I want to watch. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like I much more prefer to put something in like this um and enjoy this you know like I, I can say that about like you know um you can say that about like stanley kubrick you know uh, 2001's probably his best film but i'd much rather put in like shining or full metal jacket <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh so, so it, it, they're asking a little less of you in some ways i mean they're, right. they're, what's nice about pompoku is there's a lot you can just kind of tune in for 15 minutes and just enjoy the goofiness and the silliness and, you know, root for them as they're destroying the trucks. They're just that are destroying their habitat. And you're mm -hmm. like, cool. This is, this is really fun and wonderful. And, you know, enjoy also the fact that your American, my traditional American values that I expect out of a movie are sub are kind of, uh, they don't follow directly in the way the film goes. And right. um, maybe part of what I found frustrating is that it's, it's not, american movie and therefore it's not uh gonna give me what i'm used to and that's okay right 
Well, what in contrast to my neighbor, the Yamadas, which is also, as you said, a very Japanese film. Uh, what I found interesting about that film is that despite it being so Japanese, it's very relatable. Um, there's a kind yeah. of universe universality to it that is definitely missing from Pompoko, which is so, you know, um, specific in its in its uh setting and in its in its meaning everything is very specific to japanese culture and specifically to that one area in japan you know uh whereas my neighbor the yamadas is kind of like you know just your modern everyday family well i think that's i think that's it exactly and uh uh it's funny i feel like i bring up scott mcleod in every show that i do but you know mcleod's theory about a face being a circle with two dots and a triangle and a curve on that everyone sees it as a face right. a family with a mom and a dad and two kids and a dog everyone sees it as a family and they mm -hmm. can see themselves in that family to some extent because you know, it's a common base that we all come from. And it's what we shape, it's what shaped us for better or for worse, right? It, yeah. it, it, and it really is who we are. So we can always see ourselves in a family. Um, and, you know, this is a very specific family, very specifically in, Jap in Japan, the dad and mom and grandma have very specific roles in their family and the society. Um, but you can, there's, there's no getting around. It's a mom and dad and their kids. Right. And a grandma, and a grandma. <laughs> right? And and who can't relate to that on some very basic level? And apparently, there was all kinds of allusions to Japanese culture and tradition in this film. A, a relatively small handful of things I could pick up on, like the ocean wave painting towards yeah. the beginning of the film. But it's apparently full of dozens of Japanese references. But because well, it just, starts with the a... core of the family, I could relate to. The stories they're being told inside it yeah well it's the scenes are often they use and i thought this was so wonderful that they used haiku as kind of like a as like a comment upon a scene when a when a scene would end and then they would you know uh a haiku would would be read by the narrator uh who again great choice of a narrator for the english dub david ogden uh, uh ogden Styers from mash mm -hmm. uh yeah and and just kind of like a wonderful sort of like soft voice you know <laughs> yeah kind of just kind carries of you through it. And, yeah um you know so like a perfect example of that is the scene where the boy is trying to act tough i, I can't remember the exact context of the scene but he's wearing like that um construction helmet uh, he's confronting the bullies and he's wearing that construction helmet and just trying to act tough. Uh, and then at the end of the scene, he's sort of outdone and he's left there with the helmet. And then there's the um, narrator reads that, um, that Basho haiku with the, about the cricket, you know, being under the warrior's helmet and how sad that is, you know? So it's just really smart use of just, for example, haiku, which is, obviously a Japanese art form to complement uh, this modern uh, experience that's taking place in this film. Well, modern experience is a great way of putting it. 
because it's not just that the setting is modern right uh, but also the animation style is it it feel it, it's deliberately like nothing else uh Ghibli had created at the time and really like nothing else in commercial animation at the time which I think is one of the reasons the film was not successful uh, so Takahata oh, I, go ahead well from what I understand I, this was the first Ghibli film to use digital animation yeah and you know that story behind it which I thought was so interesting the scenes no, were me. still drawn by hand. Okay. And then they were scanned in. And then they were colored and animation was added to them. So it was an extremely time-consuming process. It actually added time to the process. But what Takahata wanted was something where the backgrounds weren't as layered as there are, are in most of the Miyazaki films. At the uh -huh. same time, they were working on the Yamadas, uh, Miyazaki uh, Miyazaki and his crew were working on Princess Mononoke, you know, obviously a lush fantasy film. Right. And he was frustrated with the fact that characters felt distanced from the backgrounds they were in. He was also apparently quite influenced by a, a Canadian animator who um, had drawn a lot of a, a cult animator who had drawn a number of cartoons where characters are kind of in these impressionistic backgrounds, kind of emerge out of white space. And so that inspired Takahata to ask for a much more minimalistic feel to this film, to give it almost a watercolor film that feels mm -hmm. so kind of vibrant in a way I'm not used to seeing. I haven't seen Princess Kaguya yet. That's going to be the next one we talk about. But people right. kind of, I, I've heard a lot of people say they feel like it's perfected in Kaguya. Uh, but here it yeah. just really gives the, the movie kind of a sense of life and also a sense that you never quite know what's going to happen. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I, I, well, I'll stop there and then we can talk about the beginning, which I was going to lead into. Well, the art style is an improvement. Well, not an improvement. It's sort of a modification of what he was doing in Only Yesterday with the flashback scenes where he had kind of like that washed out uh, backgrounds. So it was meant to duplicate how in memory you, you're left with more or less impressions. You're not really left with like, all the stage scenery you know you you don't remember all of that stuff you just kind of like remember the impression of a moment mm -hmm. uh, and so they wanted a visual representation of that and this film they kind of like took that to its extreme <laughs> and what i like about that is and maybe what lends the film its universality is that uh, yeah it's a japanese film but because the um, backgrounds and the settings are so abstracted that uh you know beyond like um uh beyond uh, uh people sitting on on the floor while they're eating or uh the sliding uh japanese uh sliding doors which i can't, can't think of the name of them right now uh but you know those kind of like specific japanese um japanese architecture or things like that they're depicted but they're depicted in such a way that it's kind of like so minimalistic that and and you you mentioned scott the scott mcleod you know how if you get to that level of abstraction that you can kind of like project whatever it is that you want to see onto whatever it is that you're looking at you know like a perfect example that would be like 
the minimalism of uh, like Charles Schultz, for for example, uh, you know, where characters are almost they're they're so rudimentary or minimalistic that they're iconic as a result. Um, you know, that that sort of thing is happening in this film, I think, where you're you're not crowded with too much detail that it kind of like drowns out your ability to relate to what you're seeing on screen or to like put yourself into the uh, roles of the characters or kind of like lend whatever setting uh, the act action is taking place in the film and like give it your own scenery, as, for example. So it's kind of freeing in, in that way. Um, the first time I saw the film, I was a little, it was kind of like off-putting just how sketchy it was. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me a while to kind of like get into the rhythm of it and the mood of it and appreciate it for what it is, uh, which is a really unique way of doing animation. And I can't think of any ex other example uh, of any animated film that did something similar to this before. I think it really kind of like broke new ground, visually speaking. But I could see how audiences could be sort of put off by that, uh, especially Japanese audiences who are so attuned to detail. A specific kind of approaches to animation. And specific they... kinds of approaches to animation, exactly. You know, there's the, the certain style that was quite popular in 1999 when this film was made, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Dragon Ball Z type style that we're also familiar with today and this is not right. that right this is its own thing aside from the little stress mark on the characters foreheads occasionally there was very little that uh really reflected that i mean i think you had a good point there because very little animation is like this only yesterday is really the only other example i can think of that i've seen we're so used to the lush animation and you know to, that's part of what made Pompoco feel so odd is that the 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 use of the lush animation, the hyper detailed backgrounds, and you know Disney's multiple levels of of depth in it. Um, he created way back with Snow White. Um, right. It feels very off putting. I felt I felt for this movie right from the beginning, with that initial sequence about um the kind of family on the boat together oh yeah and this whole yeah. idea that a family will always hold together through rough waters because the rough waters force you to be combined together what you have to worry about is the calm waters because the calm waters allow you to not keep your focus on the family and allows you to drift in your own direction and i thought the whole sequence of them fighting the waves and the waterfall yes. and all that stuff was just so like poetic and then the movie kind of comes back to that at the end too the whole sequence that you know ending with the with um the dad carry riding the bike and pulling that giant uh snail behind him <laughs> is just so charming and so wonderful yeah. um and it is a little bit shocking that the, then the movie kind of moves into this very prosaic everyday life feel to it uh, you could really see a film like this being a kind of combination of fantasy and reality but instead it uses that fantasy to drop you in reality and that's a very interesting kind of transition because one of the first scenes in reality is the boy reading the manga right and you see an action scene that looks like a samurai story or something drawn very abstractly and it 
deliberately focuses over on him and then you see his ordinary house um it's as if um takahata and team are saying we all have our imaginations we all have our our daydreams and ways of playing with time uh but we all end up kind of in this real world we live inside right uh and there's a lot of poetry in both the fantasy and the reality right because we come back and one of the bridging elements in the beginning part is the grandma talking at a wedding and uh, kind of sharing her wisdom and when the dad gets up i think it's the same wedding right and makes his speech flubs his lines and then comes out with something kind of very beautiful uh it really pulls everything together in a way that kind of shows this journey that we all go through when we create a family so mm-hmm. I found this movie to be actually really moving. Yeah, it's it's a again it, another film, more or less constructed around vignettes. Uh, this was a this was a film that was based on a manga, um, so this would have been oh, the third film of his that was based on a manga, Chie the Brat. Only yesterday and this one. Probably true. Yeah. Uh, so it it does have almost in watching it, and I've never read the manga, my neighbor the Yamadas. I don't even know if it's been translated into English. Yeah, it's a newspaper strip to be more it was a news okay. More like Garfield or Peanuts. Yeah, so it was a newspaper strip. Uh, occasionally like so, Calvin and Hobbes, I suppose. Right. Thank you for the correction. So uh, with that in mind, it definitely has that feel. It, it, it reminded me uh, th- of the old Peanuts adaptations, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Great Pumpkin or, or the Christmas special, where the filmmakers sort of took strips uh, set, set around a holiday or uh, generally they were set around holidays, but they would take a series of strips and just animate them, maybe flesh them out a little bit, but they were more or less just sort of like animated strips and they were all kind of like um, put together into a a somewhat larger narrative. Um, it, It definitely had that feel to it. It felt like it was a comic, uh, a comic strip that was animated and sort of slapped together. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but it definitely does have that feel. Uh, so it can be, I think one of the only drawbacks to that is for a full length film is that it can sort of maybe, and I, I found myself doing this from time to time. You, you kind of, because there's no specific dramatic thread leading through the entire film, like you have, say, in Pompoco, with you know the the uh, them banding together to to stop the humans from developing their land. Uh, in this film, it's just it's just these moments in time, and that's poetic in a sense, yes. But at the same time, as a dramatic film it it can kind of lose your interest from time to time uh yeah kind of 
I, I found myself sort of like I pause it, you know, maybe go into the kitchen, make a cup of tea, come back to it, watch it and not feel that there was any kind of I didn't feel like there was any interruption to it. Um, <laughs> There's no Jason Bourne diffusing a bomb or something. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so it's a different kind of movie going experience. I, I think I would feel a lot differently about watching it if I was watching it in a theater and I was, you know, in the theater there to see it. Mm -hmm. Whereas watching it at home, it's kind of like, well, you know, I can kind of leave it and come back to it. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And even uh, only yesterday has a little bit of uh, drama in that it's got the rom-com element to it right and it kind right. of keeps you drawn into it yeah so there's a dramatic build throughout it that's sort Although of ghost the cellist also doesn't really have a dramatical dramatic theme other than he him trying to be creative this doesn't even have shorter, anything but it's a shorter film i think it's yeah. a little more it's only about an hour long this is uh, this is about hours, an hour and yeah. a half or two hours so it, it i think that was the that was my only real complaint about it was that it was almost too uh vignettish it was it was almost too episodic for me mm -hmm. um it kind of lacked you know it, it kind of lacked a dramatic you know um what's the 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 rules of drama is that you have like you have to have the problem and then the resolution well there wasn't really any problem per se no. and there isn't any real resolution either it's just um you know there there are you know there are problems and resolutions throughout the film you know episodically speaking like you know they leave the child behind at the mall and have to go back and get the you know and get her and and, and they're all amusing and they, and they're all kind of but they're all kind of anecdotish you know um well they leave the the scene where they leave the daughter behind at the mall is like a perfect illustration of what you're talking about right because i'm going to add a little spoiler warning at the beginning of this episode i just realized um <laughs> because you know they go through with this whole sequence of like oh my god we left her at the mall and i'm expecting some big drama right and right. the real truth of it is that is the daughter and her little friend she makes saying oh, our parents are lost we know where we are but our parents are lost right Right. And she comes home and it kind of just all gets diffused away. And right. part of you is like, well, why did I buy into this as being a drama? Um, <laughs> when actually, uh, so my my belief on this film is um, the key to this film is the song at the end, que sera, sera. Absolutely. Whatever yeah. will be, will be. Right. right. And um, we just accept the fact that whatever will be, will be, you know, we'll forget our shopping list and then we'll find it <laughs> an hour and a half later in the film. Right. Or, you know, we can't make, we can't make sushi at home or can't make stroganoff at home. So we'll end up ordering the sushi or um, we'll argue over the TV remote, which is oh, maybe yeah. my favorite sequence in the film. Mine too, um, actually. <laughs> it just felt so relatable, right? Um, yeah. You know, case sera sera. Uh, in the end, you know, we're just all kind of floating around as they do in space and just being living our lives and doing our things. And then, you know, there's no real kind of dramatic element in most of our lives. Right. We may see ourselves as a hero in our lives, but in the end, you know, we're not James Bond. We're not Jason Bourne. We're not even Princess Mononoke. And, right. um, 
that's another thing apparently that Takahata really wanted to do was um, he wanted to produce a film that was not um, a fantasy that was much more like training for real life mm -hmm. much more about the prosaic everyday existence where um, you know it's the small things it's uh, you know losing a baseball over a fence and then having someone reward you for your honesty and then have that honesty kind of hurt her in an odd way. Uh, so I think this is an example of a film that says more about its audience than it, it does about this lack of success says more about its audience and maybe that moment in time than it does about the film itself. I think it's just a difficult film. In a way, Pompoko is not a difficult film in some ways because, you know, it's little creatures fighting society. They mm -hmm. do these silly things and they end up, uh, you know, they end up having these great adventures. You know, only yesterday is uh, this girl goes off to the country. She's unhappy. She meets a guy and falls in love with him. You know, uh, goes the cellist. He, he's a guy who's struck and can't, can't come up with his musical composition and then is able to produce something magical, right? Uh, great right. with the fireflies, you know, it's, it's, I could go on and on, right? It's mm -hmm. got a def definitive through line, tragic through line. This is a yeah. film that asks a lot of its audience, um, forces you to be patient, forces you to not expect the drama, forces you to right. maybe be a little introverted as you watch it, thinking about the poetry and uh, you know some of the stuff with the animals running around, um, and forces you to get used to the art style too, which is you know, deliberately off-putting. I mean, I used the term earlier. I think this is really an auteurist film. I think this is absolutely Takahata's vision filtered through his the people who worked for him. And and it's kind of an amazing vision. I'd say it's definitely his most experimental film. I've been talking sure. a lot with a friend about the three-act structure mm. and how common it is for films to break out of the three-act structure. And this is such a non-three-act structure film. <laughs> and, you know, like I was saying before, you know, we're so used to certain rhythms. This film right. doesn't have those rhythms. No, it pointedly rejects them. I think in ad, uh, Adapt, I, w I wonder how it came about. I don't know much about it, but I think in, in adapting a comic strip, he saw an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, with Only Yesterday, it was a manga, and he came up with the framing device of having, you know, the older version of that character from the manga looking back. And that's a more sort of almost cliched kind of Hollywood type of dramatic structure to a film. And I think he had gotten to a point in his career and and you'll probably hate me for saying this, but I almost think like Pompoko was sort of a um, defining film for him in a lot of ways because it was such a um, it was such a, a bringing together of all of his different themes mm -hmm. into one film. And whether it explored them successfully or not, it was sort of like drawing them all together. Uh, and I kind of feel like. Pompoko was sort of like his last film of his of his early career 
and that what my neighbor the Yamadas is is the late career the beginning of the late career and everything that came after that um which isn't much yes let's um, say kind yeah. of truncated <laughs> um is is him just kind of like doing he freed himself of his obsessions in a way and that now he could just make these films for the pure enjoyment of making the films yeah and that's uh, another kind of beauty of it right he's right he's the late career filmmaker who's had his successes and now is able to explore the topics he wants to explore yeah and you know, also and... to sort of get to the core of what it is about animation that fascinates him why is it that he chose to be an animator and it's almost like that pure visual uh creation of animation seeing those drawings come to life which is the real enjoyment and the real like creative um passion that animators have that's that's why they do it is like making it's like the same reason puppeteers puppet or dancers dance right it's mm -hmm. to see that that cr all of that energy and all of that uh, drudgery magically transform into these visuals on screen um this is kind of like getting to the very essence of it uh, this film and and kaguya obviously uh, which which sort of improves upon and builds upon this animation style that he happened or created late late in his career yeah so i think late in his career is key to this right because you could say you know this is spielberg now making the movies he really wants to make right he's he's got plenty of money he's he's gonna get he he'll get people to cover whatever he wants to make so sure he wants to remake west side story then go ahead you know you have a blank check essentially you know <laughs> and and uh not not a director but you see this the film choices tom hanks is making at this point in his life you know he wants to just do the projects that uh, appeal to him for better or for worse and that's just his thing clint eastwood right i mean takahata right. was born in 1935 you know he he had his success pompoko was obviously a project he was passionate about um he may, came out well when he was just about 60 yeah, and it was a huge success. It was a huge success. And right. I think anyone, my impulse at that point, a point of success would be, I just want to do what I want to do. I don't care what anyone else is doing. Yeah. I have a blank check. I can do whatever I want. And I have my staff who's going to be loyal to me and they're going to make payroll. And um, let's just make this this movie. You don't and have to worry you can about see it even more in Kaguya. You don't have to worry about it. It's bankability yeah you well know, and he's he, seeing his friend miyazaki or his friendly rival miyazaki who's right. continually making these you know oddball movies right to yeah be, you know we we love them now but you know how's moving castle is an odd movie sure sure and um he's seeing his friend do essentially the same thing and, yeah you know, by the time the wind rises came out you know yes he was truly committed to that I, i'm sitting here trying to figure out what well princess mononoke was the movie that came out around the same time 
yeah so that's that will bring us to our and then spirited away which you know uh it might be his most personal film too sure well there that that brings us to our our next episode and last episode on takahata we're going to talk about kaguya and because it's sort of like we don't have a, a a movie to pair with it we decided to watch the documentary on ghibli um and talk a little bit about the wind rises because the documentary is about the making of kaguya and the wind rises um is it the kingdom of madness and dreams i think it's called yeah which is available on hbo right so we're going to talk about those three movies and that'll be a really opportune moment to discuss late career filmmaking for Takahata and Miyazaki Mm -hmm. because I think The Wind Rises was a definite departure for Miyazaki and the film that he's been planning and working on for the last 10 years or so uh, is obviously another film in that vein it's an extremely personal project that Miyazaki has been wanting to do his entire career so so um and it kind of reminded me a bit of like Kurosawa doing Dertsu Uzala, which was a film that he wanted to make as far back as the 1930s. And then uh, after Adotska um, Den was such a abysmal failure, he just felt, well, I'll just kind of like do whatever I want because what does it matter? Yeah. <laughs> and so he did this extremely personal film, you know. Um, and it, that was kind of like the obverse of what they're doing where they're, they're making personal films after a, a moment of, of unbridled uh, commercial success. Um, you know, there's another <laughs> the filmmaker. Whether that... these are as great as Ron or Kirikawa Sour Dreams. <laughs> it's going to be right. hard to top Ron. Well, yeah. Yeah. Ron is a, de- a definite pinnacle, not just in Kurosawa's career, but probably in, in motion picture history as well. Um, you know, as another filmmaker, I think of it just before we we finish up. I, I wanted to mention your one of your favorites is Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Altman was an excellent example of a filmmaker who, every time he had even a modicum of commercial success, he would make an incredible, me, um, personal film or totally non-commercial film or films series of films. Uh, he was notorious for doing that. Um, you know, I, I can think of his early 70s films, which were successes. And then he made that s- string of like almost anti-Hollywood, just completely, you know, like uh, he made Nashville and then went on to do Three Women. Uh, or um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller came out and he did Images, you know, mm-hmm. um, or all the, I, I think, was Popeye a success at the um, box office? I think it was. I don't think critics liked it, but it was a box office success, right? Yes, and it's actually and then, proven to be his most popular film in his entire career. In his career. And then after that, he just basically left Hollywood and started making uh, adaptations of like stage plays for a number of years, you know? Yeah. So he, he was, or and then The Player, and, and right after The Player uh, was this enormous success critically and uh, commercially, he made Shortcuts. <laughs> you know so um which is kind of more would, of the same yeah only yeah so greater. he he was he was kind of like notorious for that and and to me that's always like the bravest filmmaking you know um 
you could just ride that success and then make more of the same, or you could do something completely different and personal that you've wanted to do. And here's your moment and you take it uh, and you dash any, possibly dash any hopes of, uh, you know, reclaiming that, that, um, that commercial success, you know, basically like push yourself back into the pariah position intentionally, but you make the art. Well, I think you know? about this because it takes a restless mind to create the diverse works mm-hmm. to not become derivative of your derivative of yourself. And it takes right. a, a certain amount of courage and a certain amount of trust in yourself, uh, a certain amount of craziness to say, <laughs> I'm going to do something that's a radical left turn compared to everything I've done before. And I don't care if you like it. This is what I want to create. Um, yeah, I mean, you know you're going to appeal to me when you talk about Altman, and I can like, talk about him literally all day. Yeah. Literally all day. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating to see where people come to late in their career. Yeah. yeah There's certain Altman movies that are not beloved that I can, like, I'm prepared to defend endlessly. <laughs> Buffalo Bill and the Indians, I think, is magnificent. That's a brilliant film. I agree with you. Anyway, um, we've gone off on a tangent, haven't we? We we have, but but that but that to me is is what's going on with. It's a charming movie. It's not like a intentionally, like, um, aside from the the animation style, which I think is intentional. Coming back to Yamadas. Yeah, to the Yamadas, I think is intentionally off putting. As we've said, um, the the lack of dramatic structure is intentional. But it, but it, it it's not a confrontational film, you know. It's I don't feel like he's trying to confront audiences. He's just trying to give them something different. Well, Yamadas is kind of a very relaxing film if you take it from yeah. a certain attitude, right? Pampaco is yeah. a stressful movie. Yeah, yeah. Yamadas, I can just see like that. This kind of very kind of breezy way to spend two hours if you approach it from the right standpoint. Right. So there, and that's get, the point. See, There's no drama. Right. Right. You were going to say. So, but, but what, you know, that, you know, that's, he, he knows as a filmmaker, what beats he needs to hit. He knows what audiences are expecting and he knows how to play against that. You know, mm-hmm. um, the, the greatest experimental uh, composer or filmmaker or painter or whatever uh, has an, an absolutely, uh, uh, masterful understanding of what it is that they're experimenting against, mm-hmm. and so you know he, he's he is a great filmmaker, and and um, I don't think he's. We're getting to his last film, which I'm very anxious to speak about. I don't think he made a bad film. I think some of his films are better than others, but. Uh, I don't think he was capable of making a film without passion. Any, there's no, just he was he was incapable of of making a movie just as a kind of like a workman like effort. Okay, so let's save that for next time. And dig yeah. into that in more detail. Um, despite my complaints, I enjoyed watching Pompoko, but I thought. Uh, my neighbors of Yamanas really resonated for me. 
I think it was the opposite for you. <laughs> I think so. Um, as I as we began the episode, they're they're two demonstrably different films with demonstrably different, um, you know, aims. I guess you would say. Um, they're they're it's apples and oranges. It's it's kind of impossible sure. to compare the two, but I have a nostalgic reasons for loving Pompoco as much as I do. Uh, I do think that it's a more enjoyable film than Yamada's. Okay. So thanks for talking about these with me. Yeah.